The revolution may not be televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. I'm your host, Brittany Gallagher. We're bringing you stories about the internet and technology and how they're shaping culture, changing every aspect of our lives, how it's glorious and awe-inspiring, but can also have a dark side, and how we can prevent some of its abuses. In this week's episode, Dr. Casey Hanmer of JPL is back to talk about SpaceX's Starship and how it may be the way we get to our moon and Martian colonies sooner than we think. The Starship itself could be, once fully refueled in orbit, capable of flying from there to any planetary body in the solar system with a solid surface, which is really quite something. Heinlein once said once you're in low Earth orbit, you're halfway to anywhere, and the Starship represents the ability to get the other half of the distance. In the later part of the show, Dr. June Axup, the scientific director and partner at biotech incubator IndieBio, will be talking about the future of meat. It's more than just Impossible Burgers. With the increase in population that we predict to have in the next 25 so years, we are going to see a huge increase in need for protein in order to feed the world population. And with climate change as being a problem too, arable land is decreasing. So there's a huge pressure now to start looking for alternative solutions. But first, the Republican Party has been known as the denialist party when it comes to climate change. But are they shifting gears a bit? Back in December, minority leaders of the House Energy and Commerce Committee hosted a climate innovation showcase on Capitol Hill, featuring technologists working on new ways to reduce heat-trapping emissions endangering the planet. I'm joined by regular guest Dr. Addison Colleen Stark of the Bipartisan Policy Center to talk about the shift we're seeing and that maybe Republicans are finally accepting climate change as fact? One interesting thing that we're seeing now is from the Republican Party is there's a bit of a shift in their approach to climate change. And in some ways, we're seeing them embrace innovation. Can you talk a little bit about that? So one of the things that when I came to D.C. to work on this issue and at the Bipartisan Policy Center a little more than a year ago, I did not foresee the real shift that's occurred among the Republican Party on the issue of climate. I knew that we needed to be able to move for bipartisan solution, and there were always some space for that, the support of basic R&D, the support of the development of new technology. But what we're seeing today is the Republican Party is really following their voters, recognizing that today more than 60% of Republican voters across the U.S. recognize that there needs to be a plan for climate change, that it is directly affected by humans. And importantly, when you look at some of the key states, If you look at Iowa, for example, 79% of all voters in Iowa, they prefer a presidential candidate who has a plan to address climate. And that's from both parties. That is an overwhelming majority across the aisle. And so what you see is the Republican Party today recognizes that denialism no longer has a place and that they are actively engaging with a new approach, which is focusing on bringing their own free market solutions to climate change, which is truly a shift to what we were seeing even 12 months ago. It's exciting, and what it means we're in a very positive place to move forward. I don't think anyone saw this occurring in this administration. However, we're in a really good place to really make some progress. What do you think is the reason why this shift happened? Is it really just because we're see- they're seeing their electorate 
respond to polls and say that they're they're interested in climate change. Even the president seems pretty trapped in denialism. Response to the electorate is really how American parties do evolve. So recognizing that particularly, and I think the biggest thing you see in responding to their voters, responding to the shift in polls about what voters thinks is really a generational shift. The Republican Party is recognizing that you need to be able to evolve with younger voters and be able to follow along and really win over the next generation of both the millennials and then the up-and-coming Gen Z that recognizes that this is a problem that's going to be on their shoulders if we go past this mid-century without fully decarbonizing and being on a path to limiting the most adverse effects of climate change. So I think there's that realization that the original messaging of denialism no longer works with a great part of the electorate. It's great that now some Republicans are no longer denying climate change and in fact are looking towards solutions. But a lot of the traditional Republican mantra is really anti-regulation. And it seems like to combat climate change, Regulation of both old and new industry is critical. You're right. So if you look at the Republican Party's approach today, I would argue that, yes, their approach, which can kind of be summed up as innovation, not regulation, is only halfway there. Innovation is necessary but insufficient to address climate change. But the other side of that coin is that regulation without innovation is going to be suboptimal and more expensive way to address climate change. So really, we need to find a way to thread that needle. If we can find a way to have a constructive conversation between the Green New Dealers on the left who want to push for immediate decarbonization and banning of fossil fuels with the recognition that we also need to have a more stable transition and innovation to be able to utilize fossil fuels during a transitionary period, both for the recognition that huge parts of our industry, of our society depends on this, and also down to individual rural counties, that cities that are dependent on fossil fuel production, we need to find a way to have an organized transition. And that involves innovation to drive down the costs of clean technologies. And if we can have some major steps forward on support of R&D demonstration and deployment policy for innovation, and Republicans are able to spearhead that, it starts to bring us towards driving down the costs for a regulatory approach, whether it be a carbon tax or a cap and trade regime or some sort of clean electricity or energy standard, whatever regulatory approach that we do agree is necessary, I agree with you on this, is still going to be incumbent in how expensive the technology is and how expensive it is to deploy, because that's going to really set the stage of what is the true cost of abatement of mitigation of our CO2 emissions. One of the differences between the, the Democratic approach versus the Republican approach is how they see what this innovation should be and what the types of technology should be. Could you talk a little bit about that? That's a good point, Brittany. And you look at this situation right now, Republicans are coming from a very different approach to what is a clean technology or a carbon solution versus what the traditional, say, environmental left has been pushing for a long time. We've seen the growth of solar and wind across the U.S., and we have very viable renewable energy technology industry because of that, and we talked about that the last time you and I chatted. But what you're seeing now is the Republicans are coming from 
support for nuclear energy? How do we revitalize and grow that industry? How do we develop carbon capture and sequestration to enable a continued viability for fossil fuels on the grid and in our uh, economy? And this is going to be a very real debate for a long time. It's not like one side is, uh, it's not clear which way is going to win. I, for one, am somebody who's very technology inclusive. And I think that Republicans do have an argument that we need to be able to support and expand nuclear and carbon capture. But also the long-term advocacy from the left has really been an important thing to drive and develop new industries. And so finding a way that all of these technological approaches, which we're going to need them all, can fit into a future regulatory structure or a broader policy approach to address climate change is going to be a very important thing. And again, it goes back to the beginning of our conversation is fundamentally we're in a place where we're, we're arguing about solutions now. And that's something that we can't say we were doing a year ago. It was more about the science and the science is now accepted. So now we need to be talking about what is our solution approach and that's going to be messy. If we're going to see it go through D.C., we're going to see the most ideal bipartisan agreement no one's going to be happy with. But hopefully we're going to make some big steps towards decarbonization, which at the end of the day, I'm willing to make a lot of compromises to get to there. That was Dr. Addison Colleen Stark of the Bipartisan Policy Center explaining how we may have finally made some progress with congressional Republicans on believing that climate change is real and humans are the cause. Of course, there is still a lot of work ahead of us to get to where we need to be. Up next, I'm joined by JPL's Dr. Casey Hanmer, whose opinions are his own. Casey is the author of the blog Misconceptions in Space Journalism. Today, we delve into SpaceX's Starship their ambitious effort to send lots of cargo and eventually humans to the moon and Mars. What is SpaceX's Starship and how is it different than what we've seen before? In one sense, SpaceX's Starship is conventional evolution of existing rockets. It's just much larger, shinier, it uses the most advanced technology and it's being developed at a much more rapid pace. In another sense, however, it's actually really quite different from existing rockets in that a primary design criterion of this rocket is that it's fully and rapidly reusable. A little bit like the space shuttle, but for realsies this time. And it's also enormous. It's meant to have a cargo payload capacity to low Earth orbit of around 100 tons, which is about 10 times most the capacity of most rockets that exist today. So not only is it going to be maybe 10 to 100 times cheaper to fly, but it'll also take 10 to 20 times more cargo than most existing rockets. That's really quite exciting. What's the size difference of this between, say, like the traditional space shuttle? So the Starship is is somewhat unique in many respects. It's very shiny. Its cladding is of stainless steel for its superior uh, thermal management properties. And it's also extremely large. So the Starship, as currently designed, would be similar in scale to the Saturn V rocket, although given that its fuel is methane rather than hydrogen, substantially more dense and with a somewhat larger cargo capacity to low Earth orbit and also fully and rapidly reusable, unlike Saturn V. Saturn V, credit where credit's due, is the only rocket that's ever launched people to the moon. But if I recall correctly, the total payload to the moon, which included the ability to get home, was something on the order of two tons, whereas Starship will be able to launch up to 200 tons to the moon with a little bit of finagling in geosynchronous transfer orbit. The Starship isn't just for cargo, though. Like Saturn V... It will be for people also. 
The Starship will eventually fly people as well in a number of different configurations. One possibility is that Starship could be used for very rapid transport on the Earth. It could get essentially anywhere in under 45 minutes. And then, of course, it could also be used as a mass transport to low Earth orbit and beyond. And actually, one of the other major design considerations of the Starship is that it be uh, refillable. That is, that the fuel can be recharged on orbit with flights by additional Starships so that the Starship itself could be, once fully refueled in orbit, capable of flying from there to any planetary body in the solar system with a solid surface, uh, which is really quite something. Uh, Heinlein once said, once you're in low Earth orbit, you're halfway to anywhere, and the Starship represents the ability to get the other half of the distance. It has a, an additional neat trick, which is that it's designed to be efficient enough that it can fly from almost any of those planetary bodies back to Earth without a booster, without a, a first stage to get it off the gravity well. Venus would be pretty challenging, I think, but from Mars or the Moon, uh, it can fly back in a single stage with just a single spaceship, so it doesn't need a booster or a complicated launch support there. It could fly, in theory, to the Moon and then back. So as designed, it's actually capable of, of flying substantial quantities of cargo, like we're talking tens of tons of cargo, from low Earth orbit to the Moon and then all the way back to Earth without having to refuel on the Moon. It's also capable of flying on order 100 tons to Mars, and then once it was refueled on Mars, you'd need a fuel factory on Mars, be able to fly from Mars all the way back to Earth with a modest amount of cargo, which means that the spacecraft is able to come all the way back. It means that the problem of how do you get back from Mars is effectively solved. Right, but you'd have to solve fueling from Mars, right? Well, in principle, you could refuel it on Mars with eight more starships. So if all you needed was... <laughs> well, I mean, it's exactly the same trick that's used in low Earth orbit. So in low Earth orbit, eight starships worth of, of fuel are enough to completely refill the starship, which is enough to give it more than enough fuel to go anywhere you would want to go. And on Mars, same trick. So if it's very, very, very expensive to build a fueling factory, maybe it's cheaper just to fly 10 starships there, most of which are full of fuel, and sacrifice nine of them, leave them behind and reuse them there for some other purpose or, or just not use them again, and then take all their fuel that's in their cargo bays and, and somehow transport it to the starship designated to... To go home. To go home. The alternative to that is that, you know, at some point down the track, you build a factory there that, that processes local water and carbon dioxide with uh, the use of local energy and synthesizes methane and oxygen fuel on Mars and then uses that to refuel the spacecraft and send them back. What's the timeline looking like for this? I don't have any special insight there, but it does look to me that SpaceX is attempting to build this as quickly as they can. And they have a pretty good track record at this point of, of rolling out new designs and new iterations of rockets and getting them flying in a remarkably short period of time. The Starhopper development vehicle flew to, I think, 150 meters, and then they recently um, uh, put the Mark One Starship in Boca Chica, Texas, under a pressurization test that resulted in part of the spacecraft flying to about 200 meters, which is 200 meters higher than the SLS has ever flown. So... You know, they're rapidly kind of moving forward on Mark III and Mark IV versions of these starships, are rapidly building and iterating the design. And, and I think the internal goal is that they'll have high, high atmosphere flights by 2020, uh, sorry, by the end of 2020, and, and orbital flights shortly thereafter. Of course, it's a moving target, and we haven't had any recent recent comments out of SpaceX on, on their precise, uh, on the, or I should say, on their latest schedules. It does say 2020 on their website. If it says 2020 on their website, then it will definitely occur. And Elon always makes his deadlines sooner or later. So to me, the really exciting thing about Starship is that if you add up the total launch capacity of all the rockets launched by all the different countries and, and companies all over the world, right now it's about 500 tons of cargo to low Earth orbit equivalent. And it's not that hard to envision a situation where Starship, within just a few years of it first being launched, is 
able to launch millions of tons of cargo to low Earth orbit per year. So not 500, not 1,000, not 5,000, but millions, literally 2,000 to 20,000 times more than we currently launch. And that really changes the game. Even if 90% of that additional mass is just fuel to take the rest somewhere else, it really changes the game. For decades and decades and decades, enthusiasts and professionals have been trying to work out how to build cities on the moon or cities on Mars with just, you know, drips and drabs, like a two-ton lander here and a two-ton lander there, and we'll hollow out this rock, lurk around inside and hope something exciting happens. No, there's no way to build a city in a place that's so awful as, as the moon or on Mars with such a fiendishly difficult mass constraint. The only way to do it is to obliterate that mass constraint completely and, and do what the U.S. Army did best in the Second World War with just terrifying logistics and say, oh, you want 500 tons of toilet paper? No worries, it's there. Just in time, next day, Amazon Prime delivery anywhere in the solar system. Yeah, Coca-Cola and bulldozers and, and, and giant telehandlers and you know, enormous rockets and thinking about, about packaging stuff not, not in like small cardboard boxes or something, but by the container load. And then when you start thinking about that, then it becomes much more interesting because instead of trying to figure out how to make do with you know, as much cargo as you can fit in the back of a big truck, you start to think about, well, actually, what can I do with as much cargo as I can fit on the world's largest container ship, um, which would take a few thousand flights to get there. And that's actually much more exciting rather than being like, okay, I think we might be able to keep four people alive for two years. It's like, okay, I think we might be actually able to replicate the entire industrial stack in one lifetime. And that would be pretty cool. That was Dr. Casey Hanmer talking about SpaceX's Starship. You can find out more about what Casey has to say on Twitter at CJ Handmer. To close out the show, I'm joined by Dr. June Axip, scientific director and partner at IndieBio, who are working to help scientists bring their research to market. Today, June and I talk about the future of meat. Listen to this. Yeah, this is super exciting. I am not a vegetarian or vegan, but I've actually really loved trying these different types of meat alternatives. And I guess we can back up a little bit of like why it's starting to become popular. First of all, I think there is a consciousness that uh, meat is probably not so great for us, and especially eating lots of meat. Um, there's you know, reports around red meat, uh, increasing cardiovascular diseases. And of course, we still need really good sources of protein. And of course, meat is delicious. It's very savory. Our taste buds are kind of designed to respond to that. But it is also extremely taxing on both our bodies and the planet, of course. With the increase in population that we predict to have in the next 25 so years, we are going to see a huge increase in need for protein in order to feed the world population. And with climate change as being a problem too, the arable land is decreasing. So there's a huge pressure now to start looking for alternative solutions of providing quality nutrients for our growing population. And as we know and popularized by a lot of different movements is that factory farming is very awful, um, not just for the animals involved and the animals getting slaughtered, but also it is increasing antibiotic resistance because we're using so many antibiotics in our food supply chain that ends up getting into us. There's a lot of issues around um, different types of outbreaks because of the close quarters that these animals are subjected to. And, and other things like in fish, for example, microplastics are a huge issue that we are ingesting lots and lots of plastics these days, in addition to mercury and other kinds of pollutants. So there's an idea of moving towards clean meat, 
uh, and alternative meats, of course, plant-based meats where we can uh, take plant ingredients and really try to mimic the same taste and structure as meats. It's interesting. In the Impossible Burger, it has the soy hemoglobin, which helps make it appear to have that bloody coloring. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also affects the taste a little bit. One of the questions that has come up somewhat recently from Whole Foods CEO John Mackey, who is a vegan, says that these plant-based burgers, they are great for the environment, but they're also highly processed and maybe not good for you. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think there is the argument that this is a very highly processed food, and, and that's true. Actually, one of the reasons I actually did try the Burger King Whopper and the, with the Impossible Burger, and it was so good compared to a normal Whopper, because I think normal Whoppers are also have a lot of additives. Right, they're so bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in that comparison, the Burger King Whopper was actually delicious. And yeah, I, I'm not completely sure on you know all the ingredients and the processes that Beyond Burger and the Impossible Burger undergo, and like what type of plant ingredients they they include as well. You know, this is the beginnings of the step in the right direction. So. Of course, you know, eliminating some of the animal-derived fats and, and cells may already be a little bit healthier. And I think in the future, as we put more attention into health as well, uh, there's going to be a lot more coming up that hopefully will be truly healthy for you. So we've talked about plant-based burgers like the Impossible Burger or Beyond Meat. But what about clean meat? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, exactly. So the lab-grown meat side of things. It's called cell-based meat or clean meat, clean for both planet and for you. The first company that launched with this is called Memphis Meats. Uh, it is actually one that IndieBio invested in. And uh, they started by making a meatball that was grown from the lab. So they took a stem cell from a cow, grew it in the lab, and actually grew it in IndieBio's lab, and then they fed it to a couple of VCs as the first prototype of what it could be like. And this completely changes the way we produce animal meats. You know, of course, you can think about building this laboratory in the middle of downtown San Francisco and growing everything and distributing it to the restaurants around it, right? So it's a completely new business model as well, and distribution model from the molecular side and, and the, the production side, you're, you're not using antibiotics, you're controlling so that there's no contamination from bacteria. Yeah. And then also thinking ahead too, is like you can really tune the ratios so you can make, put more fats or less, well, in this case, you probably want to put less fats uh, into the meat. You can change the cell composition and things like that. And then making, you know, the texture, which is one of the big challenges but you can do 3D architecture to really try to mimic the toughness and the pullability of, of the muscle cells. So there's a lot of work that has been going into this. It's been about four years. Uh, Memphis Meats in particular had gotten a Series A of $14 million. And what's actually really interesting is that part of their funders included Tyson and Cargill and Richard Branson and Bill Gates as well. But it's really interesting to see that Tyson Cargill, who are you know, chicken producers who you think would be competitors, are actually backing this because they see this as the future and a way to you know, increase their own profit margins in the future. Because kind of going back to what I was saying before, that I think the, the world is getting constrained on demand of protein. And so if we can supplement what we currently have 
with these lab grown meats, I think it actually just, it, it helps and, and actually helps to feed the world. And then also since, since Memphis meats, uh, there's been almost like two dozen companies in the space. Um, some of the other notable ones are Finless Food, which focuses on fish, Wild Type, which also focuses on fish, New Age Meats uh, that focuses on pork. There's one that focuses on shrimp and lobster, and there's a whole bunch of companies that blew up around this, and, and which is great because there's so many challenges and there's so much opportunity for, for everyone to be in this space. Since meat is a gigantic industry, there's going to be a lot more technology and more people needed to help make this a reality. Outside of mimicking meat, what other traditionally animal-created food are they trying to synthesize without animals? Yeah, outside of meats, I think the other immediate big one is dairy. Uh, dairy cows actually produce double the methane as normal cows. And so, you know, dairy being a huge industry is there's at least two companies in the space called Perfect Day and one called New Culture that are making different components of dairy, but they're making it in bacteria. And so they're using genetic engineering and bacteria to ferment the proteins. In the case of Perfect Day, they're making whey protein and then New Culture is making the casein protein uh, and they're making ice cream and cheese, respectively, out of that. And Perfect Day actually launched. So um, it, it's still a soft launch, but they are hoping to be in your stores shortly. And then there's all kinds of other ingredient companies, such as Clara Foods, that's making egg white without the chicken. So they're also using yeast fermentation to create the egg, egg white proteins so they can make this a very nutritious additive to other products. Are there concerns around artificially created food and that maybe it's actually worse for us? Yeah, I think that is a valid fear. And uh, I think, you know, with all new technology, we have to have these conversations about safety. Of course, safety is something that these lab-grown meat companies are taking extremely seriously, are proactively engaging both the FDA and USDA to try to figure out how to regulate and make sure that everyone in the industry uh, subjects to this kind of regulation. So that, that's something, it's an ongoing conversation. There's obviously huge advantages to what they're doing, both um, from making you know, cleaner and healthier products and cleaner for the world. But uh, yeah, as with all technology, I think they are also very aware that some of these things might not be completely predictable. So, you know, a lot of that is going to be in the way they test their products and, and making sure that what they're, they understand what they are editing and they're not just making, you know, random edits everywhere. So understanding exactly what their processes and, and all the ingredients that get put into it are. I've also been hearing a lot about fungi. Yeah, so a company called Prime Roots is making a, a meat substitute, but from fungi. So fungi can be you know, mushrooms, but it can also be single cell organisms. And one of the advantage for fungi is that, especially the organisms that they're using, is that the thickness of it is very similar to the thickness of muscle cells. So essentially, you can recreate the same texture of mu muscle meat from fungi, and this is different from plant-based because one thing that we often see with plants is that their fibers are really, really thick and they're usually very cellulose-based. And so, so it can be very tough. And 
in order to make plant-based products delicious, oftentimes people have to to really kind of batter up the the and rip apart the fibers. Uh, and then they would usually mesh and reconstitute them, which is why traditionally a lot of plant-based substitute tends to be a little bit mushy because you've actually broken up all the structure and it no longer mimics what meat looks like. So the advantage of the fungi um, meat alternatives is that they already have that texture. And so um, they've been able, this company, Prime Roots, have been able to prototype all kinds of products from seafood to you know, chicken to, to pork. I think all these future of food things are extremely exciting. I think traditionally our food supply chain has already been so impacted by biotechnology. This is a new set of tools that are being applied to create new types of foods. And it's going to hopefully be hitting the stores in the next couple of years. So I encourage you to try it and help support the planet. That was Dr. June Axip on how biotech is reshaping how we see meat for a healthier us and a healthier planet. You can find out more about June and IndieBio at IndieBio.co. We've covered SpaceX's ambitious effort to build a starship and how we may finally be seeing a shift in Republicans thinking on climate change. Here's to hoping. That's it for this week's edition of Digital Village. I'm Brittany Gallagher at In a Quantum World. You can hear this episode again and more by subscribing to our podcast and following us on all things social using at digitalvradio or at digitalvillage.org. A special thank you to our regular guests, all doctors, Dr. Addison Colleen Stark, Dr. Casey Hanmer, and Dr. Jin Axa. And of course, a thank you to Evo Jansen for our theme music. Rick and I will see you online.